Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Comrade Bill Bohr. Comrade. Yes, if you cannot beat them, you join them. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I remember when George W. Bush met for the first time with Vladimir Putin. He said, when I look in his eyes, I could see his soul. And McCain said, the only thing I, when I look in his eyes, I see are three letters. K, G, and B. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'm all for uh, improving our relationships, our relationship with Russia. Uh, I don't think we should um, support the fact that they're killing civilians in uh, Syria, even as we sit here. And getting along better with them does not mean we let them run our government. So, <laughs> well, it could mean that. I mean, it's one way to get along better. It is. It is one way to get get along. So, it might we, not be the optimal way. No, for us. No, you know, you never thought the Manchurian candidate would happen this way. You, no, you didn't think it would come through the front door with all the colors ablazing. Bigly. Yeah. Bigly. Yeah. I did see that uh, the one who. Uh, Less than half the population voted to be president. Met with Kanye West today, so that's all good. Didn't Kanye say he wanted to run against? I, I'm not sure. He's, Kanye, he's been having a rough couple of weeks, so uh, I think he went got his uh, you know just had a, a buddy talk with with the Donald. One of the best things I've seen in a while was like Snoop Dogg. Just like I guess he was like Facebook living or something. He was watching Kanye's meltdown <laughs> at one of his shows, like in the West Coast, and like. I was it Anaheim or something? But Snoop's commentary was like, he's like, this is why I smoke weed. You gotta relax. <laughs> <laughs> he blows this huge puff of weed. It was awesome. It was pretty great. That's awesome. Yeah, that's why Willie, Willie Nelson, he was, allegedly Willie Nelson's young man was a very angry drunk and he switched to, to weed and, and the rest is country music legend. Snoop Dogg has a, a bull terror, like the Spuds McKenzie, that kind of little white mm -hmm. dog. Mm hmm and it, its name is White Boy. <laughs> it's the best. Give me a White Boy. <laughs> it's, 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 that's the best. That's good. Same time. We're getting a lot of uh, musical knowledge. We're doing, yeah. We still, we're going to have to tear, by the way, we're going to have to tear through. We sort of stopped. Our, we're going to have to do like two episodes, our top 16 songs, and just do it before the new year. We'll just bang out our list. There we go. It sounds good. So we'll just do like one or two episodes. Maybe we'll do a marathon episode, and we'll just play... Like eight songs. There we go. Because we can. Because we can. We're not. Yeah. We're not scheduled. There's no. We're on a schedule. Ratings. Anything like that. No. No. This is. Uh, this is the new world. It is. It's. It's like west of Westworld. <laughs> we are west of the Western world. We're, we are slouching towards Westworld. I was very surprised, by the way. Before we move on, I was very surprised that we received very little commentary from. Central Pennsylvania on our electoral college episode. Yeah, it's, it's a busy time, you know, this, this season. So, Well, st speaking of the season, Bill, let's talk a little bit about the origins of the reason for the season. And by the way, I mean, I don't know, this might be too soon, but because he's not been inaugurated, but is it safe to say Merry Christmas now? Uh, yeah, you can say Merry Christmas. Well, there you go. 
doing our part to make America great. Merry Christmas, everybody, everyone. Uh, but I always thought it was funny that the alternative to Merry Christmas was Happy Holy Day. I mean, Happy Holidays, Happy Holy Days. I didn't even know Holy Day was holiday. Yeah. I, that that yeah. was the etymology. Yeah. Folks, you're getting a real education here <laughs> in a lot of areas, <laughs> from music history to, uh, you know, the etymology of secular, God-hating holiday <laughs> greetings. <laughs> there it is. And uh, and the fact that every, there's a run on vodka right now. Uh, yes. Yeah. Stoli. Would there be a run of a, yeah, I mean. Well, I don't know. That's the first Russian thing that came to my mind. Yeah. They have these neat little cars. My wife actually lived in Russia for two years. She lived in Moscow. Hmm. So yeah, she, and she speaks Russian. She does speak Russian. Yeah. yeah. She's, uh, she, she's, yeah, she has a lot of, she's been to the Museum of Propaganda. She may be the only one that gets us through the next exactly. four years. She might. She does. She does. She's, she's a very, very interesting. Maybe we'll get her on here to talk about Russia sometime. She's yeah. a very... She loves Russian culture. She has a lot of interesting takes on Russian society. She's very like, uh, she has a unique perspective. Oh, well, I mean, there's a, it's, a, it's an amazing people with, uh, you know, marvelous writers and, um, and art and bad pe- weather. A people that have suffered greatly uh, from their own rulers and from those on those trying to conquer them. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting folks. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we might be seeing much more of them and over the next years. social media. And she sends me stuff yeah. from Russian friends and her the pictures on social media. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. So here we go. Let's talk about the reason for the season, the main man, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and the origins of his birth. Yeah. You know, again, in, in spite of, I mean, this is the time of year where... Um, you know, various folks talk about so much of how the popular, even the popular religious celebration of the season is based on very legendary material. So much of the things that we do around the season have uh, origins other than in, in Christian. Uh, and, and a lot of the things we hold dear have been baptized from all kinds of different sources, which to me, I think, is one, is one of the strengths of Christianity that we can take and learn from lots of of different uh, traditions and that we can take a pagan uh, holy tree and turn it into a Christmas tree. I think that's, I think that's uh, brilliant. In fact, the fact that they dated the birth of Jesus near a, a pagan holiday, I think is also a wonderful marketing move. So I think there are a lot of things that more than marketing, it's, it's an, it's the opportunity for uh, faith to embrace culture and, and transform it through the lenses of the revelation of Christ but at the heart of of this is the idea of God becoming human, and uh, it's it's funny that the virgin birth, for instance, was maybe one of the theological battlegrounds of uh, the modernist fundamentalist conflict. And and it's interesting now; it just doesn't seem. It's it's interesting to look back on that was that was one of the battlegrounds. Yeah, the the fundamentalist modernist controversy, which. I mean, still shapes our religious consciousness today. But, yeah, you know, well, by the way, Noah's Ark is fully open. I mean, I've seen, like, I've looked at video footage and stuff. That theme park looks awesome. Okay, and by the way, can I? I, I may be the only person, but th- that song that now has been done by three or four different, you know, all kinds of different versions. Mary, did you know? I, I find that song annoying for some reason. 
you know, uh, <laughs> I know this will be this will probably All be right. this will probably be the most hate mail we get. I saw a I saw a poster. It says it starts the line. Mary, did you know? And the answer is yes. She knew. The angel told her. <laughs> yeah, she did know. She did know. I yeah. did see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of weird hymnody out there. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so how do we um, how do we talk about the virgin birth in the postmodern moment? Uh, on podcast. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's how we do it. We're out here broadcasting for millions. Now, yeah, I think, well, so on one level, you could argue that I think like the armchair, one, one armchair way to think about this, it's just reductionistic and simplistic, but I never stopped us before. <laughs> is uh, that I think that it, one thing that at least in the late 20th century, there's somebody like N.T. Wright, Okay, take for example, New Testament scholar is able to make provocative claims about the resurrection because the awareness that every kind of discipline and every academic inquiry is there, there's no objectivity that people are situated. It doesn't mean you can't be fair and honest, but you're right. situated. And so things like the miraculous, you know, his his book on the resurrection, which is like 800 pages or 900 pages or something, which is a wonderful book. It, it, it's funny because. He makes some pretty bold claims about the historicity of the resurrection, how the resurrection, as the New Testament attests it, seems to be the most logical historical explanation. And he sent it to his philosophy professor from his undergrad years, I think, who he's still in touch with and has a warm collegial relationship with, who is not a Christian. I think he's an atheist. And he said, Tom, I can't refute your argument, but I still just don't believe it. He said, I follow your argument, and I think it's actually, I just refuse. But there's a sense in which the rationalism of the early 20th century, which separated people on the right and left in Christianity. I think that is less, it's a less firm boundary. I think like, I think people that are left of center in mainline Protestantism, a kind of marked skepticism is not as much of a sort of union card to be, uh, you know, to be a liberal Protestant. Right, right. Not that, again, not that there aren't skeptics, not that there aren't, but like, it's not, it, it, I, I think it, it's not the battleground kind of thing it was. Yeah, I think the other thing too, in, in some levels, from a, we don't, uh, well, okay, I say we, but it's generally not uh, advocated that original sin is something that's transmitted through sexual relations or it's there's not a sin gene. So the you know kind of post-Augustinian argument, and well, even it starts before Augustine, but the idea of her needing to be not only a virgin at the time, but then eventually the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is a doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church still teaches, you don't need that uh, given, I think, in a lot, of different, a lot of the different ways we think about original sin. We don't, you know, there's not a sin gene that's passed on and so the virgin birth was not a biological or a, uh, I guess, would you say biological or spiritual or psychological necessity because um, that's not the nature of how original sin works. Yeah, I think that, that is true. So I think it, well, I mean, it's very interesting too because the, I think you could argue, right, that the text, which is Isaiah 7, right, right. that mentions a young woman will be with child. I mean, 
people used to say virgin, now we say young woman, but like that my teacher, Charles Partee in seminary said that this is what proved to him that the virgin birth probably happened because it was such a vital tradition that they thought there must be a text that predicts it somewhere. And like, well, this is close enough. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, it's not very convincing. The passage in Isaiah has nothing to do with my virgin. Well, the interesting thing is that it's, um, regardless of the need to, you know, have the argument between naturalism and, and supernaturalism, it's very clear that the writer of Luke, and, and I mean, he's self, let's call him Luke, um, you know, wanted Luke, to, Luke. <laughs> you are my disciple. <laughs> that Luke is very clear that, uh, in the, I mean, let's face it, the whole uh, setup of the birth of Jesus is around the idea that Mary is pregnant uh, and not by uh, not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I actually think that. So, okay, this is these are my current thoughts today. I mean, as if I ever just get on and say, "Well, Bill, I'm going to give you some of my thoughts." <laughs> circa 1980. Although you did have me thinking a lot about 1987 the other day with that yeah, song. I was, I, I've still really taken aback by that. But, uh, yeah, my current kind of thinking, I think when you look at the, the miraculous birth story with Joseph and Mary, it's the antitype to the types right. in, in the First Testament. Because most of the people that have not conceived and actually intercede, they ask the Lord for assistance for a birth that will help them right. socially, in, 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 you know, culturally, it will be a blessing. And so it's, so they're, they don't have to be asked to cooperate with God. They're already ready. They're asking God to cooperate with them. Here we have a pregnancy that is miraculous, but not welcomed, not invited, right. and actually probably problematizes Joseph and Mary's li- lives in numerous ways. After that. Yeah, it, it makes sense that if Jesus' life ends in a scandal, and that's part of the the gospel message, that the fact that it begins in the scandal, there's coherency there. And that the fact that in many ways his whole life has shadows around it, um, even though as much as we think of him as being popular and attractive, and, uh, and I'm not saying he wasn't, I think there obviously he, he drew crowds, but... Uh, you know, bigly, yeah, bigly. There was crafts. always there was a shadow from the beginning. I think that to me, um, in, in some levels, you get, you get caught into the power of the, you know, the Luke's hymns of, uh, of you know this wonderful messianic piety that probably existed, uh, you know, surrounding uh, Jesus at his uh, you know the time of Jesus, and these are amazing. Uh, radical. I mean, in terms of being Mary's, the Magnificat is a political statement. The proud will be brought down. The rich will be sent away empty. And it looks like it's happening right now before yeah, our eyes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I mean, you know, if you want to say it's amazing, all you good Christians voted for the Antichrist. Congratulations. Um, but, um, you know, there's a sense where uh, the um, power of the story of this peasant girl in an occupied territory brings the savior of the world without the agency of a man. So and she she's the new Eve, right? There's that's you know there, that's a, you know I think 
that's not an exaggeration. That's exactly what's going on there, I yeah. think, in, in the narrative. And I think there's a sense where, um, you know, you, you think about the whole holy history, you, as you mentioned, are, are about miraculous births. You know, there's a sense where, and it's always not only for their own blessing, but the promise is at risk. Yeah. The promise is always at risk. Even the the uh, great redeemer Moses, his birth is at risk. So there's always this this kind of narrative that's part of the story of these risky births and that um, at the, the phrase Paul, hope against hope, seems to be the narrative of faith. And so it it would make sense that holy history culminates in the most extraordinary birth of all. So there's a coherency in 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 the whole story. And of course, that's part of Luke Luke's theology is, is a bridge. It's a bridge theology. It's, it's he sees the fulfillment of what's going on in holy history in the Jesus movement and in the person of Jesus himself. Okay. Go ahead. I was, I was looking recently at Karl Barth and dogmatics and outline because uh, I was thinking about uh, the lectionary texts and. He, he Bart here says that again. These are lectures on the creed that he gave in post-war Germany. Born of the Virgin Mary once again, and now from the human standpoint, the male is excluded here. The male has nothing to do with this birth. What is involved here is, if you like, a divine act of judgment. To what is to begin here, man is to contribute nothing by his action and initiative. Man is not simply excluded. For the virgin is there. But the male, as the specific agent of human action in history, with his responsibility for directing the human species, must now retire into the background as the powerless figure of Joseph. That is the Christian reply to the question of woman. Here the woman stands absolutely in the foreground. Moreover, the Virgo, the Virgin Mary. God did not choose man in his pride and his defiance, but man in his weakness and humility. Not man in his historical role but man in the weakness of his nature. As represented by the woman, the human creature who can confront God only with the words, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according as thou hast said. Such is human cooperation in the matter, that and only that. And it's interesting, the only male in the narrative of chapter 1 of Luke is Zechariah, and he is silenced. Yeah. So I think it's a powerful statement. And again, if you understand the biology, the way, you know, the, the readers of Luke, whoever received the message, or the kerygma, whenever the virgin birth got added to the kerygma of the early Christian message, the biology of that time was that everything that you needed to be human was, was, was carried in the man, and that the woman was really a, merely an incubator. And so even given the backdrop of the first century biology, the fact that everything that you know, makes up this person is coming from the divine, I think only, you know, re- reinforces, reinforces that. Yeah. And, you know, Karl Barth and the Church Dogmatics in, in, in volume one, section two has a section on the miracle of Christmas. And he says, look, I mean, the, we have to understand the miracle is the incarnation. The, the virgin birth is the sign. So could God have procured redemption without the virgin birth. Sure, but he said, but he chose this sign, so we have to let we have to let the sign explicate the mystery. Right, right. And I think there there is this the sign does convey that our redemption is utterly gratuitous and counterintuitive and not expected and not welcomed. Right. No, <laughs> and think, something that we don't 
contribute to, but we we receive it, and it and it's something that you know. I think of last week's uh, gospel text. I think for the lecture was um, Matthew eleven. You know, bl- blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. Yeah, the yeah. words back to John. So. I, it, it, it there is a sense in which it's it's mild it's at least mildly offensive sometimes or, or maybe extremely offensive and I think it uh, I mean even to, to top it all off lose gospel I mean it's almost there's this kind of divine comedy behind it because the first witnesses to you know to the story in Luke's gospel are shepherds and you know again there's some critical debate about this but there are sources that say that shepherds they're you're, if you were a shepherd they wouldn't allow your testimony in court because you were a notorious liar so not, <laughs> <laughs> so not only does god bring about the salvation of the of humanity of the cosmos actually for god so loved the cosmos uh through a peasant virgin unwed teenage girl but uh the first testimony given of the birth are by people who no one trusts. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I, I read a couple of years ago, several years ago, I think it was in like Slate or something, a publication like that. Somebody was talking about the holiday season and winter solstice and you, you know how the right. church has appropriated that and, and, and put, you know, winter solstice, the shortest, coldest time of the year. Yeah. And it's just time like, hey, we've made another year and we're, we got to go through the winter, which is brutal in right. pre-modern reality. And he said, you know, this is part of the reason to celebrate, like the Festival of Lights, like whether or not you're religious or deeply pious, but there's this celebration of humanity. And and the church calendar works that way, right? Like it's then, you know, after Christmas, you know, after winter solstice, the days get longer until they get to the Feast of John the Baptist, the longest day of the year. Then it goes, it decreases because I must decrease the he must. But I mean, there is this the, the, the powerful nature of the sign that when things are darkest, uh, then comes the light, even in an incredibly fragile form. Yeah, and I, I think it's great that um, that Christmas became part of the of the story. I understand, you know, again, initially the church just celebrated, you know, the crucifixion of Easter, and Easter was the holy holiday. But it seems to me that the idea and the implications of the incarnation become more important when, you know, the general resurrection is delayed. In other words, as people of faith, we're not merely looking to be taken out of this world, but it turns out that the uh, the story is going to go much longer than anyone anticipated and that it gives us as the human race an opportunity to redeem life here. So, yes— our hope is in the you know the coming, the coming triumph of God and the coming resurrection of all of us because of the resurrection of Christ. But the idea that the human race is changed. Matter of fact, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in um, it is in his ethics one in one of the essays in ethics talks about because of the incarnation, the entire creaturely order is changed forever. And to me, the evolution of beginning to celebrate and embracing. Um, some of the pagan embracing of light and, and joy and in the midst of uh, the bleak midwinter evening, to me, is, is a great innovation and a great implication that creaturely, the creaturely world has been sanctified by God himself in, in, the, in the womb. I mean, the fact is, God himself was baptized in human fluid in, in the virgin's womb. Yeah, it's interesting, Karl Barton, 
Church Dogmatics 3, 4, he's talking about the ethics of creation. He talks about parents and children. He says, why should people have children after the advent of Christ? He <laughs> says, you know, and it, for Israel, it makes sense because every child right. could be the child of the promise. He says, you know, the, the act of having children is bearing witness to the non-forsake, non-God-forsakenness of the world. Right. That this is a place that has been hallowed by the visitation of the Christ child. There's this story I came across, I came across it years ago, and I recently retold it in a couple of contexts, but I love this. This is from a, an Advent sermon preached by the Capuchin monk and, and priest, Father Raniero Catalamesa. He's the preacher of the papal household, my old job. And <laughs> in an Advent sermon in 2008, He concludes the sermon preaching to Pope Benedict and his counselors with this story. He says, This is the most necessary conversion for those who have already followed Christ and lived at his service in the church, an altogether special conversion, which does not consist in abandoning what is evil, but in a certain sense in abandoning what is good, namely in detaching oneself from everything that one has done. This emptying of one's hands and pockets of every pretension in a spirit of poverty and humility is the best way to prepare for Christmas. We're reminded of, it, but reminded of it by a delightful Christmas legend that I would like to mention again. It narrates that among the shepherds that ran on Christmas night to adore the child, there was one who was so poor that he had nothing, nothing to offer and was very ashamed. Reaching the grotto, all competed to offer their gift. Mary did not know what to do to receive them, having to hold Christ in her arms. Then seeing the shepherd with his hands free, she entrusted Jesus to him. To have empty hands was his fortune. And on another plane will also be out. Amen. Bring a torch to Lady Isabella. Bring a torch to the cradle.
is mine.